Cool. Well, if I'm going to be honest, and I feel like we should since we're here at our Sunday gathering, uh, I did something uh, that I'm not proud of, but it's, it's not something I often do. It's something that, uh, I don't know, COVID, I'll blame it on COVID, but I actually, um, Kaylee Ann went to Nebraska like three different times over this COVID season, so by the third time, I was pretty bored. So I binge-watched a show. And if you know me, that's not something that I often do. Some of you are like, yo, that's Tuesday night. What are you talking about? Um, this is my story. This is my time. Uh, I don't often do that. But I found a show that was absolutely incredible, and then I passed on the addiction to Josh and Angela. And so they let me know that they finished the first season so I wouldn't spoil anything for them. But uh, have you guys seen the show alone? It's old. It goes back. It's, like, not new. It's uh, an older show. But I went back to the first season, and I got addicted to it and watched it nonstop. What it is is they drop off 10 survivalists, people who have skills, uh, people who are not just like, oh, let's pick somebody off like, you know, Rodeo Drive and throw them in the middle of the woods and see what happens. It's people who have made either a living or been in the military and been through seer school, different things. Drop them off in, on Vancouver Island with 10 items, and they say, hey, stay here till you quit. So you have a phone that you can tap out on. It's pretty amazing. They, the contestants all video it themselves, so it's um, done pretty amazing for what it is. But uh, they've got 10 items that each and every time uh, they get to choose from. There's a few set ones, but 10 things they get to choose from. And so as you watch the seasons of the show, because yes, I watched three seasons of the show, uh, you notice that there's certain things that every single person picks, even though they have a wider range of things they can choose from. That when they get dropped off in this place, and some of the most devastating stuff is the fact that they're alone. So you've got guys that have been in combat scenarios tapping out before night one. Uh, good old Arizona in the second season, the guy tapped out before the first night. So it didn't even get dark, and he called out. So go Arizona. Um, it was. It was very disappointing. I was a little bit ashamed. It's true. Uh, but I don't know why I'm in my house alone watching the show, and I'm like, Arizona, why are you so terrible? Um, but they drop them off, and so here's what I saw, that each and every person, as they went, they picked a few different items. So, uh, Brooks, can you come up and help me? All blades have sheets. Mom and Dad. So, they picked the same items, that some of the items, that no matter how disorienting, uh, this one's a really clever weapon that they always choose. Somebody always chooses one of these. Can you handle that one? Don't hurt yourself. All right. And they pick a pot, right? Because you need something to cook with. Uh, and then it also doubles as something that you can drink out of. So it's pretty amazing. But every single contestant on the show, every single time, no matter how uh, extreme the environment is, they go to the Arctic, they go to Vancouver Island. I'm sure they do a ton of other places. They always pick one of those. Uh, they also pick, you can set that on the floor, a knife. Everybody has one. Like there's not one person that ever goes, sweet, I'm going survivaling. Survivalist scenario, I don't need a knife. Everybody has one. You can drop that one too. Make your mom nervous. Uh, everybody also picks one of these things. A good old fire starter. Uh, not matches, because if matches get wet, then you're kind of out of luck, right? But if you use a ferro rod, they throw off sparks, super hot, will always cause a fire, uh, and you just take that little striker and strike it. And so if you lose that, say if you left it on a log and then the water came up and washed it away, you tap out because you can't start a fire. Just saying, it might happen in the show. You can put that down. And then everybody had a hatchet. Every single person grabbed a hatchet. And so you're like, wait a second, you already have a blade. Isn't that super close? Thank you very much, Brooks. I appreciate it. Thank you. You can go ahead. That's the four things that we're going to go with today. 
Hooray. They grab these four things, and then they get six more. They assortment, fishing hooks, all these different stuff that they could want to use. Uh, but every single time, and no matter the scenario that they're placed in, because it is so disorienting, there's certain things that they grab to every single time in order to say, here's how I know I can make it. Here's how I know that even though I'm being placed in a scenario that's meant to be disorienting, that's meant to be extreme, that's meant to throw me off my game, these are the things that I'll grab every single time to be able to get my bearings, to figure out what I need, and be able to secure fire, shelter, water, and food. And for us today, we're in a super disorienting season. Uh, not nearly as beautiful as being dropped off in Vancouver Island uh, for all the beauty that it is, but being dropped off in COVID season— 2020, figuring out how in the world do we live faithfully as a church together in this moment that we've been given, what I want us to do over the next few weeks is to reach into the bag and grab out a few of the very uh, ordinary things that we have, tools we already have been given, and then ask afresh, how do we use this in this new season? How do we use this in this new era of being the church? Because I, I don't want us to be intimidated by the events that are happening around us. Yes, we're in an absolutely tumultuous political season. Yes, we are all confused about which way is up when it comes to medical professionals telling us what exactly is going on. Yes, we're trying to figure out what it looks like to school children in a world where school now tells you to school children. Um, some of you are like, I've been geared up. I've been doing that already. Other of us are like, oh dear, how do we roll with this one? Jobs are being lost. New jobs and vocations are being had. Moving homes, different things, all coming at us. But what I want to remind us of is that the same things are true for us all the way through. And so the, the, the four key questions that we ask, if you were to grab four things out of a bag every single time, these are the four questions that we ask in every single situation we find ourselves. And so whether it's 2020 or 2025 makes this look like JV. God's appointed us to be in these moments as his church. And I don't want us to miss that. That God in all his divine wisdom, the God of creation, the God of eternity past, has chosen us for this moment to be his church, the hands, the feet, the voice of Jesus together. And so we ask these questions. Who is God? What has God done? And that's why we're in Psalm 103 for the last few weeks. Because we answered those questions. We saw how God is an absolutely astounding creator, father, maker, pursuer. The one who loves relentlessly and pursues us no matter what. Who rescues us from the pit and then sets us out with a crown on our heads, right? He redeems, he forgives, he heals, he restores. All that he does. And then it makes us into something. And this is the question that we want to ask for the next four weeks in particular, is who are we in light of all that God has already done? So that we can answer the question that actually presses on us probably most potently. What are we supposed to do right now? And we can't answer that first question without working it through the other three first. Otherwise, we're going to end up in some sort of confusing, moralistic, uh, just pattern of life. But Jesus actually has a way forward for us in this season. And so we're going to look at something basic. We call it the gospel identities. Uh, if you've heard this before, I invite you to lean back in because it's something that hits us fresh every time. 
And as we ask these questions, what does it look like for us to live this way right now in this season? The answers will probably look a little differently than they did six months ago. Because the context we're loving in, the context we're serving in, the context we're living out the gospel in have all shifted. And so it's good for us as Jesus' family to ask these questions afresh. So we're going to do a little drawing. Uh, kids, if you have one of those kids' sheets, there is a spot for you to draw this. If you can draw it and show it to me afterwards, we'll have a little surprise for you next week. What? What? It's true. Even you, Kobe. Every single one of us, every single one of us, regardless of age, answers the question, who am I, very differently. But we often look to different things to create our identity. And so there's some very common things that we often look at. Uh, and so each is people for us. Some of us define our identity by our experiences. So things we do. Uh, we love to list off places we've been, uh, places that we've visited, things that we've experienced, whether positive or negative, these different things that we get to enjoy or take in, we define ourselves by, and they give our life meaning. And so we rush from one experience to the next, hoping, praying that the next one satisfies us more than the last one. And so these can be culturally positive things or negative things, but these experiences we often pursue. A second thing that we often look at is successes or accomplishments. Accomplishments. Things that I've done. So think degrees. Uh, think promotions. Think that trophy room that resides in your heart where you're like, at least I've done these things. This is how I know I'm somebody. Other times that we can define ourselves by our possessions. Our possessions. And so maybe material things that we actually own. And so we live to add to the bank account live to add to the house, live to add to a nicer, newer car, live to add to a nicer, newer phone or uh, upgrade our game system or whatever it is. Like these things give my life value. And that's how I know I'm somebody by what I own. Or it could be information knowledge. And we just try to get as much information as we can shove into our brain because then we're like, that's how I know I'm somebody because at least I know more than everyone else. And then lastly, a lot of times we can often go towards relationships. And this can play out a myriad of different ways. I feel like I'm somebody when I'm dating. I feel like somebody when I can get married. I feel like somebody when I have kids. I feel like somebody when all these friends like me. I feel like someone when I get, you know, more than 50 likes on an Instagram post. Whatever it is, these relationships that we form begin to define us. And we look to gain our identity somewhere. There's a big, long list of other things, our political party, our uh, different choices we make that we can get identities from. But these four big categories really help us out. And for each of us, we're probably a mix of at least a few of these different things at any given moment. And so before I, I jump into the next part, I want to just ask you, turn to the same people that you gave your weirdness about COVID to, that you already kind of confessed that to, and we're going to take it a step further. Does one of these resonate more than other as you look at your own identity and trying to get it? That I can look towards my accomplishments right now, or I'm looking towards different relationships or things I possess, or is it experiences I have? 
and just turn towards one or two people around you and say, yeah, one of those resonates a little bit more than the others. And then I'm going to give it. Going to go ahead and pull us back. Each of these things, be it experiences, accomplishments, possessions, relationships, each of them aren't bad on their own. And that's what's important to know. Each of these are good things. Each of these are things that on their own are not bad things for us to pursue, for us to enjoy. Each are present in actually the Garden of Eden before there was any sin in the world. There was a relationship. They had experiences. They got to do things. And they were able to cultivate literally all of creation was given to them. But the difference is that none of those things define them. None of these things, these good things, can bear the weight of being the ultimate thing. They can't give us our identity. And when we lean on them to do that, to make us somebody or define us, what happens is, uh, what Chris Wright, one author, says is that false gods never fail to fail. False gods never fail to fail. The only problem is that we as people never fail to forget that. Like we always go back to trusting something else to be our ultimate. But what happened is that they, they work for a little while, but then they fail. And then we're left with a question, what do I do now? And maybe you've been there. I know I have, right? When it's a different relationship and you're like, man, this relationship is my all. And then you break up and then you're like, who am I now? Or you are pressing in and looking for a job and you've been up, going up in positions and you're like, yes, promotion, promotion, promotion. I'm the man, and then you get fired and let go, and then you're like, who am I? You can be sad when you're let go, but if you're devastated, maybe more of your identity was in there. Or maybe your identity is gripped in these experiences, and you're like, yo, I have that wanderlust. I just want to travel. I just need to be other places, and then every time you go there, you're left just as exhausted, if not more, than when you went there because your soul never rested, your body stayed in motion, and that experience couldn't give you what you hoped it would. In each of these scenarios, we have to earn our identity. And so we're left wondering, is there a story, is there a way where we don't earn our identity, but it's given to us? And if you see where this is going, the answer is absolutely. And before we get into how we're shaped as God's followers, the identity he gives us, we need to see the story that forms us. Hear me, when we look at what do we do next in these seasons of life, the weeks and months to come, we need to be rooted in the biblical story. Otherwise, we will be washed back and forth with every single news cycle. We'll be washed back and forth with every conversation we have. But... I believe as followers of Jesus, there's a better way for us to engage with this. And so what is this story? The first act of the story is creation, uh, where God comes down, so to speak. And so Genesis one twenty six, he's created all the world. He creates man, and hear this, he says, Let us make man in our image. And our likeness that they may be able to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. What God's saying is as he creates human beings, he gives them their identity. They're going to be like him. They're image bearers. They were set in the garden to reflect God's glory literally throughout the known creation. And then he gave them a job to do. God gives an identity, and then he gives a work. But identity always comes before work. Our being always comes before our doing in the Bible. Because that's how God reveals it. And so Adam and Eve are created, right? And they have this job. Cultivate all the hidden potentials of creation. Take this raw material and make it more awesome. And enjoy doing it. 
and enjoy doing it naked because they didn't have clothes on, right? So have fun with it. But human beings rebel against God. They don't believe that identity, that they were image bearers, that they were like God. But they bought the lie of the enemy who came in and as a serpent said, did God really say, isn't there a better life for you outside God's reign? And this is Genesis 3 in your Bible. They believed that they had to do something more to get a better identity for themselves than the one God had given. They believed that the work God had given them to do wasn't enough. There was actually a higher level, right? They should have leveled up into something better. And God was holding back from them. And so they took that fruit and they ate it. And the moment they did, creation fractured, right? Because God had told them, when you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. And they experienced God always keeps his promises. And they ate the fruit. They believed that God's goodness was holding back on them. They believed there was a better identity and a different work that would give them more value. And as a result, creation was placed under a curse. But God doesn't stop there, right? He makes a promise. In Genesis 12, through Malachi 4 in your Bible, unpacks this story. God says, I am going to send one who's going to restore and redeem and bring healing to everything that's broken. I am going to, through the people that come from Abram, I'm going to make a great nation, and they're going to be a blessing to all the world. He tells him in Exodus 19, after he brought them out of Egypt, right? They were oppressed, enslaved, and God rescued them miraculously. He says this to them, giving them, again, a new identity. He says, if you keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then he goes in to the commandments that they would live to live into that identity. Again, saying, this is who you are. I am your God. Define yourself by me. You are my people. You've seen the rescue I've done. Let me continue to provide for you. But again, the people are tempted to think that there's a better identity and a better God than the true and living God. So their story is one of them chasing other identities. We want to be the great warrior nation. We want to be the conquering nation. We want to be the nation with a king you can see, not this invisible God. We want to be, we want to be, we want to be. And every time they run from God to this new way of living, they're experiencing the devastating effects of that. They were supposed to be God's people and be a light to the nations. But instead, when people looked at them, they saw people who continually failed to live into the covenant they had sworn themselves to. And then creation fall, the rebellion, this promise, the story winds down to one true and faithful Israelite, Jesus. A God's own son is born, and he announces good news. The kingdom of God is here. At his baptism in Mark 1, uh, catch us again. Mark says, you are my son who I love and in whom I'm well pleased. Identity spoken over Jesus. You are my son. I love you. This is the beginning of his ministry before he's done anything else. Identity. And then he sent out on the work to announce and embody the kingdom of God is actually here. And it isn't two steps out of that baptismal river in the Jordan that he ends up in the wilderness and you see the enemy coming in and telling him, you see it in Matthew 4, uh, did God really say, if you are the son of God, 
then do this. Three different times he comes after him, attacking his identity. If you are the son of God, if God really loves you, live this way. And if you're following in your story, you're like, Adam did it. Israel did it. Now it's time for Jesus to go ahead and fail, and we're going to have to look for another one. But does Jesus fail? No. Kids can talk. You all can too. No, he doesn't fail. He's faithful in that temptation and faithful as he announces and embodies good news. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus stays strong in his identity and trusts that God is faithful even as he carries out his work in the world, even as people push back, even as the nation wages, even as the religious people look to kill him. He believes that what God said about him was true, and he's faithful to the work that God gave him to do. Even as he hung on the cross, murdered by the Romans and the religious, he knew who he was and what he was there for. That's why he could do things that seem so absurd, like saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's why he could do things that seem absurd as staying on the cross when he could have gotten off it. Because he knew who he was. He knew what he was there to do. And by God's spirit, he was faithful to it. In his death and in his resurrection, he brings new creation into history. And this is the event by which all of history is defined. And then the story continues though, right? It doesn't stop in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in Acts, Jesus calls together his church, men and women and children who have been filled with the spirit because they believe this gospel to be true, that are sent out to announce and embody good news. The kingdom of God is still here. Yes, Jesus has ascended, but he sent us out to say he is returning. And one day he will come and make all things new. And just like he brought new creation in the resurrection, he will do it finally and fully one day for the world. And so the church points forward to the day when Jesus returns to restore all things. In the church, Peter writes this about them. He says that in 1 Peter 2, he says, the church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that they may declare the praises of him who called them out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Again, giving the identity to these people of God that they are sent out into the world with a purpose. And one day, at the end of all things, Jesus returns to restore, to make new, to heal all that was fractured in creation. And everyone who's given their allegiance to King Jesus gets to enjoy a restored creation forever. All those who refuse and say, I can do it my way. I don't need you, Jesus. I don't want you as my king. They spend eternity separated from God. But all who bow a knee in allegiance, giving their faith to Jesus, are able to enjoy this restored creation and again, the words echo out in Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Why do I tell us all this? Why do I repeat this again and again? Because this is the story by which we need to critique every other identity that we chase. Because in this story, we don't earn our identity, but it's given to us. In this story, we realize that we don't have to be something in order to, to earn an identity. 
but God himself gives it to us. We don't have to work to be in, but because of Jesus, God adopts us in. We don't have to arrange people and circumstances in such a way that they give us value, but we're freed up because God has already given us value that we can serve others. We don't have to go around announcing, hey, I got new laws for you to follow. I got new rules. I got new things you have to do, but we simply get to announce good news. In this story, we get the identity of a family. That God is a father and we're brothers and sisters. There's a whole lot to unpack in that and that'll come in the next few weeks. In this story, we're also servants. Our king reigned from a cross. He came in a manger, lived in obscurity, and then lived three years announcing and embodying good news without any kind of fanfare. And then died on a cross and invites us to die to ourselves and live to him as well. If our king wrapped his body in a towel and washed the feet of others, how much more do we do so as followers of his? And we're also missionaries. And I know that word could be like, wait a second, isn't that people sent across the world? Um, yes, but it's also people sent across the street. The word missionary literally just means sent on a mission. And that's all of us, that we act in line with God's redemptive mission, that we announce and embody good news wherever we're sent, whether it is the furthest regions of a continent we've never visited or our neighbor's house. And then a fourth identity is that we're learners or disciples. That we're learners or disciples. That none of us have this all together. We all need to be in process, listening to the Spirit, listening to the Word, listening to each other on how do we follow Jesus together. Each of these identities we're going to unpack over the next four weeks. Next week will be missionary. We're going to mix it up. Uh, the week after will be servants. Then we'll do family and then disciples and learners. Big picture thing I want us to get as we step into this is that it's worth asking the question, how do I live out these identities in the context I've been sent? It's true if you're just like, man, my household how do we live as a family of missionary servants sent as disciples to make disciples? It's true of your missional community. If you're in a missional community, we have to ask these questions afresh. How do we live as a family of missionary servants sent as disciples to make disciples? As a church, we're asking that question. Because though the moment seems absolutely insane, it is the moment that we've been invited to be this church. This is our role in God's story. The question is, will we be faithful to what God has called us to? The truest thing about us is not our political party. It's not our family of origin. It's not our sexual orientation. It's not our degree, our zip code, our bank account, relationship status, Instagram audience, job title, or ability to follow all the rules. The truest thing about us is that we are in Christ. That we are dearly loved by God, and that changes our identity. All other ways that we may pursue our own identities pale in comparison to that reality. When we are tempted to look towards something else, let this good news wash over us that God loves us, that God has called us and invites us to play our role in his story. 
and let us ask the good questions. Not how do I earn my identity, how do I maintain my identity, but how do I live out the identities that have already been given to me? And maybe the place where we most explicitly see this new reality of our new identity is at the table. Because it's at the table when we come to it that we realize we don't bring anything but neediness. And in that place, Jesus meets us and is more than sufficient for us. We taste his unfathomable grace. At the table, we realize that on our own, we are hopeless, but because of God, we have hope. At the table, we realize that we have a new family, the brothers and sisters who share this meal with us, God has given to us, both because we have something to offer them and because they have something to offer us. We realize that we have been served to the point of death by a mighty king and are commissioned to serve others in the same way. And we also realize that there's many lost children of God who are not yet around the table. And it compels us to go and announce and embody good news so that the line is even longer as we come to this feast week in and week out. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful. So grateful that you meet us here. So grateful that we are served by you, that you rescue us, that you give us an identity. Uh, we know there's nothing we could do to earn, and yet you freely give. Would that reality wash over us? For those of us who feel like failures coming into this place, would we realize that you are faithful, even in our failures? For those who feel lost and lonely, would we recognize again that we are loved by the God of everything, the creator, sustainer? God, for those that wrestle like I do, with trying to earn my identity so many other ways, would your good news seem like better news today than it did yesterday? We love you. We're glad you meet here with us. Give us faith to believe even where we struggle. Amen.